ESPNFC Daily, K. Murray and LME and France are through to the World Cup final for a second consecutive tournament. The road stops here for Morocco. What a story it was for them, but it is France who will be facing Argentina in that World Cup final on Sunday. And I feel as after that first goal went in, Luis, he kind of knew it was going to be France. We hadn't seen Morocco trail of the only team that hadn't trailed in the World Cup going into this game. And when that early goal went in, many a person thought, OK, maybe this is going to be it for France. But to be fair, they did put up a good fight, didn't they? They didn't let their heads drop. Absolutely. They did not let their heads drop. And to be honest with you, you have to give a lot of credit to this Moroccan side, the first African and Arab nation to make it to the semifinals. Uh, you mentioned about how they picked themselves up after that you know, initial bad mistake early on and they kept fighting and honestly i think i tweeted at some point in the game k that they deserved a goal their performance deserved something but france they're just so good at taking their chances individually speaking i know that we're going to talk to our team uh, after this more about this game and france specifically but full credit to morocco for fighting on but france my goodness against a lot of odds to be honest i'm very impressed with didier deschamps individually speaking of course and like you said for the first time since Brazil in 1998, they returned as defending champions to the final. By the way, 1998, when they won their first title. By the way, Kay, 1998, when Kylian Mbappé was born. Oh, yeah, and Randall Colo Muani as well, if we're going to add the old 98 oh, tags God. to this one. <laughs> uh, and what a story his is. We'll get to it. But let's first welcome in Rob Dawson to look back on this game. Uh, Rob's going to be with us to join us. We know it's going to be France and Argentina in the final of final that many would have wanted to see, even though we all were behind Morocco and on board that story. Of course we were. How could you not be? But Rob Dawson, welcome back into the Daily. What's your biggest takeaway from what we saw in this game between France and Morocco? I mean, really, just, just how big a fight Morocco put up. Um, I think everyone was probably expecting that, that France would go through fairly easily. We saw the night before that maybe it was one step too far for Croatia when they played Argentina and Argentina got through quite comfortably. But um, Morocco pushed France far, far more than, than Croatia pushed Argentina. And even after the run they've had, um, the, the energy they've expended in, in this run in Qatar, um, they, they pushed France really closely. And I actually think that they're probably 2 0 even flatters France a little bit. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it was a really, uh, you know, commendable performance and pushing France more so than any other big team in the past has pushed France. And I think you have to take a lot of credit. Obviously, they had a, almost a home support at some points. The stadium felt like it was Rabat or Marrakesh, right? But that's really been the incentive from Morocco. Rob, let me ask you something. What takeaways can you think uh, can Morocco take, from, not from just from this game, but the tournament in itself? I mean, they were known to being very defensively solid, but there were shades of some great creative play. They're more than just Siak and Hakimi, right? What, what, what can you take, I think, from this Moroccan side? I mean, I, I think there's more... Than, than just Morocco can take from their run. I think it's the entire continent of, of Africa. I think, you know, sometimes when you get to World Cups and you speak to sort of African coaches and African players, sometimes there's, there's been this little me mental block that maybe they don't feel that they're right at that, that top table and that they can't make it to, to sort of semi-finals and finals. And, you know, Morocco have, have burst over what has been a sort of a glass ceiling, I think. You know, the, there have been some fantastic African teams in World Cups in, in recent years that haven't made it as as far as this Morocco team, I think the rest of Africa will look at that run and think that they can do it next time. You know, we've seen African players in the Champions League and in the big clubs in, in Europe for, for a while now. And it, and it has taken a while for, for an African team to get this far into a, a last four of a tournament. It's probably taken far too long, to be honest. But I think African teams, 
will now look at what Morocco have achieved here and think that they can do it. And, and the next World Cup in the United States and Mexico and Canada in, in 2026, there'll be those five African teams who are lucky enough to qualify for, for that tournament will look at that and think that, you know, why can they not get to a, a World Cup final? Why can we not see an African winner? I think Morocco have proved to everyone that, that we're not that far away from seeing that. Yeah, it's been a wonderful story for Morocco, hasn't it? But we are going to get France and Argentina in the final. And it's hard not to bill it as Lionel Messi against Kylian Mbappe. What did you make of Mbappe in this game, Rob? A little bit quiet. Um, you know, maybe we saw him, uh, the same kind of role he played with in that England game. You know, the, the build-up to that England game was all about Mbappe against Walker. And um, I, I was on the show with UK and we spoke about how Mbappe had been a little bit quiet. I think the standout player for France tonight was um, was Griezmann, again. And, and not just going forward. Obviously, he was involved in, in the first goal, a crucial first goal when you're playing a team like Morocco to to get a goal on the board early. But he was popping up everywhere. And it's, you know, France had to defend so well, and um, particularly their, their centre-halves. But Griezmann was absolutely everywhere. There was times where he was on the halfway line and all of a sudden you would look up again and he was on France's own byline, clearing balls and, and defending and, um, and getting France moving forward again. You know, really in this tournament, he's, he's almost reinvented himself. We, we, we saw him at Atletico Madrid and Barcelona as this creative fulcrum, um, you know, to to help a team score goals. But really, he's turned into sort of a, a hard-working, versatile, I don't want to say a, a number six midfielder, but all, almost in that kind of role where he's, he's just everywhere. And he's been so important to this this France team, particularly with the injuries they've had in midfield and, and elsewhere. I think Griezmann really has been the standout player of their tournament so far. Yeah, it's a good point that you bring up, Rob. It's something that we've been talking about and it feels as though every game that France play, we keep saying his name, Luis, and everything that he does. He also seems so selfless when it comes to this side. He's so hardworking as well. One of my favourite movies in the history of movies, K. Murray, is Why Men Can't Jump. When Woody Harrelson comes in and shocks everybody with his Billy Hoyle skills and tactics and doing everything. I feel like Antoine Griezmann has been that kind of player at this World Cup. And he'll like that kind of uh, symbolism because he loves basketball and the NBA as well. I, I echo everything that Rob just said. I actually saw him more as a free role-playing kind of 10, where he just, you know, he felt like a six, he played like a six. He wanted to be an eight, he went like an eight. He was winning tackles when he lost them, you know, and he was creating left, right, and center. He's been tremendous. And I think it goes to show what Antoine Griezmann can do when his number one objective is not to press and be so physical under Cholo Simeone, of course, which has seen under Atleti Madrid and even Barcelona before that. He's been fantastic so far, and it helps, of course, when you have that plethora of talent for Le Bleu. But Griezmann, K has been fantastic. Magnifique, K Marie. What are your thoughts then, Rob, on who's going who's gonna to come out on top in this final? Just looking at it now from what we've seen, and particularly taking these semifinals into account, who are you leaning towards? You know what? After I saw Argentina against Croatia, I was I was picking Argentina against whoever they were going to play because I just felt there's a, a weight of history behind what they're doing in Qatar. You've got the Messi story. He's playing so well. Um, he's led them really from the front since they've arrived in Qatar. And then I've watched France tonight against Morocco and I was worried for them defensively, particularly against a player like Messi. And then they've put in a performance defensively that has been so sound that you start to think, well... You know, maybe they are the team that can that can cancel out Argentina. Maybe they can find a way to to stop Messi. I think if I had to to choose a winner right now, it would still be Argentina. I just think that Messi is in that type of form where, even in a really tight game in a World Cup final, where chances are going to be few and far between. We've seen a couple of times already at this World Cup that Messi can get the ball, take a touch, and the ball's in the net. I think if you have that quality from a player who is, who is that good still at 35 years old, then you're always going to have that edge 
Um, so right now, I think it's going to be Argentina, but it's, it's going to be so tight. Two fantastic teams with two fantastic sets of players. Uh, Luis, I was wondering what you thought of that overhead kick attempt from Elia Meek in the 44th minute. Would have been goal of the tournament, wouldn't it, had it gone in? I think the stadium might have exploded. <laughs> I think everything would have just gone up. It would have been incredible if that had happened. But just to uh, add a little bit from, you know, looking ahead to the final, and I know we're going to talk about it a little bit more. I, I have been very impressed with Lionel Scaloni and how he has begun to develop his managerial skills throughout the tournament after losing to Saudi Arabia. Now, I think, comes the biggest test for Argentina, a French team that can hit you in so many ways, because it's no longer about Mbappé, it's also Griezmann. This is going to be a really intriguing matchup. Of course, they played against each other in 2018, K, if we remember, in the round of 16. It was 4-3, and that was all that didn't include extra time. I think this one is going to extra time. Penalties, I don't know, but it should be a crack. Uh, give us as much as we can. That's what we want. We want it to go all the way right to the dying moments in this World Cup. Listen, Rob, we're going to let you go. It's been great to get your insight. We're looking forward to speaking more about you. But what I do want to do, Luis, is while we are on the subject of Antoine Griezmann, is continue that conversation as well, because it makes sense to, because we are now going to welcome in Alex Kirkland. And this is a man who covers La Liga very closely, so he knows all about Greasy. Hello, Alex. Talk Hello. to us about Antoine Griezmann and the difference of what we've seen from him in La Liga this season and what we've been seeing from him here with France. Well, you used the word selfless just now, Kay, and I think that's the, that's the perfect word to describe him. I don't know about you, I can't think of another player who is as talented as Antoine Griezmann is and is at the same time so willing to sacrifice himself for the team. You don't tend to get that with these top-end superstar players. And let's not forget that Griezmann is a superstar. I know he's had a funny couple of years and that's coincided maybe with Atletico Madrid's dropping back a little bit in terms of being a very top European team. But he's always had that that fantastic attitude. And I'm really pleased for him that everyone I think is, is waking up now or maybe not waking up to, but maybe remembering just what a good player he is. Because like I say, the last couple of years have been a little bit difficult for him. He had this bizarre start to the season in La Liga where due to this battle between Atletico and Barcelona, about what kind of transfer fee Atleti were going to pay to bring him back permanently. He was on the bench. He had to be on the bench every single game for Atletico Madrid earlier on in the season. He was only coming on around about the 60th minute as kind of a power play between Atleti and Barcelona. So he was a victim of that situation in many ways. And yet, credit to him once again, he never complained. He stuck to his, his job. He kept going. And maybe it even ended up doing him a bit of, of good. I don't know, because he's come into this tournament looking so fresh looking so hungry. And I agree, I think he's got a, a very good case for, for being the player of the tournament so far. Here's my question, Alex. Let's stick with the Atleti theme here because on the other side of that final, Rodrigo de Paul has been pretty damn good, especially in the last game. What is happening? Is it basically, we, need, we all need a break from Cholo Simeone? Is that what it is or, or, or is it more than that? And what do you expect as well in January? Because obviously, Joao Felix has already been mentioned here on the show. But do you expect a sort of reflection from Atleti as well, given how their players have been doing in the World Cup? I think Rodrigo de Paul's a really interesting case because this is a player who, I think for the last couple of years for Argentina, had been one of the most important players in terms of the team that Scaloni had, had put together, the role that he was playing alongside Messi. I think it was absolutely crucial for, for them. You look at the Copa America performances like that. And I thought actually he came into this tournament off the boil, really. He hadn't been great for Atletico. Uh, this season uh, to Paul. I don't think he was great at the start of this tournament either. But I think he, like this Argentina team, 
has grown into the tournament and that's what you want isn't it it doesn't really matter what kind of performances you put in at the, at the start of the group stage we saw spain beating costa rica 7-0 they've gone home argentina lost their opening game to saudi arabia and they're getting better and better every game that goes by and rodrigo de paul has been a, a big part of that he, he's had a, a funny season for atletico he hasn't always performed he hasn't quite found the kind of role at atletico madrid that he has had um for argentina over the last couple of years yeah it's interesting isn't it okay so We've got a few questions coming in from our viewers, Alex. How excited are you to see Mbappe against Messi? I mean, those are the big two, aren't they? There's, there's, there's no question. I'm waiting for Mbappe to, to put in another kind of signature performance because fairly quiet this evening, very quiet against, uh, against England. Messi looks like a man on the mission. You know, he, he looks like we, we all know about his sort of previous not not really personal failures for, for Argentina, but certainly being the figurehead of kind of a collective failure. And the biggest example of that, of course, would be the 2014 World Cup final. And I wonder how much this World Cup final might be reminiscent of, of 2014. Messi's Argentina are featuring again this time. It's France as kind of the European powerhouse rather than the Germany side that we saw in, in 2014. Uh, Luis mentioned that this might be a final that goes all the way to extra time and, and beyond. Of course, that was that was the case in 2014 as well. That was a game where Argentina had some big chances, missed them, and ended up getting getting beaten by Germany very, very late on. So I wonder if there might be some, some potential echoes there. Yeah, can I just say as well, I know that it might not have been Mbappe's best game, but he was still involved in both of the goals, especially yeah. in that second one. He just showed That's where I was going. what he has. Obviously, in that first one, it, it came, it was a deflection, wasn't it, that made it then come towards Teo Hernandez and then he scored the goal. But just the way, and we know what he can do with whatever space he gets in front of him, and just the way he used that to set up that second goal was brilliant as well. And I think that's the danger, isn't it? You might not shine but you're still involved in the big moments for your side, even when it's not your best performance. That's why he's so dangerous, Luis. Yeah, 100. I, that's literally, you took the words right out of my mouth, Kate. The thing about superstar players, Kylian Mbappé, Lionel Messi, Neymar, Cristiano Ronaldo, all these players is that they don't follow the same trends of the momentum of a game. They don't follow the same rhythms of the game. They can explode at any given moment. Of course, they can have quiet matches. Of course, they can have games where they're not performing to what we expect. But every now and again, all you need is just one sense of explosion and boom, they completely destroy you. I mean, Lionel Messi against Gavadio yesterday was case in point, right? Today, to your point, there's two chances as well that turned into goals. So be very careful to ever say, you know, Mbappé might be quiet today because any given second, he could just prove everybody wrong. Yeah, he could. You know what? I made a bit of a mistake letting somebody go too early here. Rob Dawson's still sticking around. So there's no point in just having him there in the wings. We might as well bring him back in. Okay, yeah, any other second there. he can explode as well. Back. <laughs> what is it they say? Two's company, three's a crowd. What's four? Four's a party, right? Four's a party. All right, so we've got some questions from the viewers. We're going to keep asking them. We'll put it to you then, Rob, first. Keys to stopping... Mbappe again in the final. If we've seen in these last two games that there are ways to at least make him at least a little quieter than he would be in some games, what do you think those keys have been? Yeah, I mean, I think the key to stopping, if there, if there is a way of stopping him, because I'm not really sure that there is an out and out way of stopping him, he's that good, that you have to get tight. You can't, you can't let him run. You can't let him have pitch in front of him where he's just going to hurt you because his main... His main attribute is his pace, and, and pace frightens the life out of defenders. And 
if you let Mbappe run at you, you are in an absolute world of trouble um, because that's all he wants to do. He wants to get the ball. He wants to uh, to kick out in front of him um, and attack you like that. And, and I think if you get tight, you make him face his own goal. Um, you make him pass it back into midfield. Then you've got half a chance that the last thing you want to do as a defender is have Mbappe running in behind you because you know once that happens, you just you're just not going to be able to stop him. Um, obviously, it's, it's very easy for me to sit here and go, that's how you stop him. You know, you've got to do this and got to do that. It's, it's a, a completely different thing when you're on the pitch with him because he is that quick and he's that good technically on the ball as well. But I think if, you, if to, to stand any chance of stopping him, you need to stop him running. Um, you know, whether he can actually do that or not and, and whether Argentina can do that on the day on Sunday is, is anyone's guess. But, but that would be my first point of, of call for the defenders. You know, stop him running, get him turning back inside and, and make him lay the ball off because you, you just don't want him anywhere near the ball, frankly. Yeah, you know what? We keep talking about attackers a lot. I think it's worth mentioning how some great performances from goalkeepers has gone throughout the tournament. Alex, let me throw this one to you because here's another question from a viewer. Hugo Loris, obviously uh, such a leader for the French national team. Where would you rank him among goalkeepers right now, I guess, not just the World Cup? You're asking an Arsenal fan, by the way. Yeah, no, I was going to say. I know. I'm gonna, I'm gonna I, you know what? As I was asking that, I was like, oh boy, what am I about to get? <laughs> I'm not impartial on this subject. Um, I think that really, Eurisa has been viewed generally as being a potential weak link for this for this France team. I don't think that's an unfair comment to, to make, even from my biased position. I think he's been seen as a, as a goalkeeper who can be a little bit shaky, who does have the occasional kind of big mistake in him in in big games but I have to say he's had a, a good tournament I thought he was good again uh, this evening he made one or two really good saves and that that big mistake hasn't arrived yet now of course there's one big game still to come and and, and hopefully it doesn't come in the in the final but yeah I think he's had a, a good tournament considering the fact that I wouldn't put him uh, right there among the kind of the, the the elite goalkeepers that some of the other teams in this in this tournament might be able to boast I wonder if you've got a thought on that Rob Dawson on Hugo Lloris I mean, I actually think that he's been underrated. I think when you talk about the, in the conversation of the world's great goalkeeper, you don't often hear his name mentioned. And I don't know whether that is because he's playing for, for Tottenham, who have been in and out of the Champions League and maybe haven't been challenging for trophies. But when you talk about, you know, fantastic goalkeepers, you don't often hear his name, which is incredible, really, because he's already a World Cup winner. You know, he may win the World Cup again on, on Sunday. And um, I, I just think maybe that there are there are goalkeepers who, I mean, flash is the wrong word for a goalkeeper, but attract more attention. Um, you know, maybe it is because he makes the odd mistake, but then which goalkeeper doesn't? Um, I think it's quite strange, actually, that, that we, you know, we, you could hear conversations about the world best goalkeepers and, and Hugo Lloris would, would be no, nowhere near those conversations. But, um, you know, the bottom line is that he's playing for, for France, who are, who are one of the, the best national teams in the world. They're already world champions. They're, they're going to go and, and try and make it back-to-back World Cup wins. Uh, and he is... as always maintained his place. He's, he's been very solid for him. Um, I think he should be in that conversation, certainly. He, he's, he's done more than enough in his career to be to be in that conversation uh, with the world's best goalkeepers. Yeah, my only quick add to the Hugo Lloris conversation is that I feel because uh, his weaknesses, right, his weaknesses are, are often more highlighted than his strengths. He's such a good shot stopper. He's very good commanding his back four or back three, whatever it is. He's, of course, a leader. And like Rob said, he's won so many things already. But his weaknesses, his delivery, his ball-to-ball, you know, pass movement to his fullbacks, it's not as good as other players. And I think that people like to highlight that more. But I completely agree. He's one of the best goalkeepers out there and deserves full recognition. 
Luis, that is the life of a goalkeeper where your mistakes are always highlighted a lot yeah. more than the good things. They're that all you insane, do. aren't they? Maybe check your mail because in a few days' time you might get an honorary membership to the goalkeepers' union there. We've got some Cristiano Ronaldo news. Obviously, he's not in the World Cup any longer. He's been training at Valde Bebas in Madrid. Alex Kirkland, tell us more. Yeah, look, I would love to say this is, you know, sensational return to Real Madrid on the cards. Uh, but I can't How do say we that. Well, look, our information is that that is, that is not the case. It's very straightforward. Um, he's still got a house here in, in Madrid and he, he's come to spend some time here with his involvement in the World Cup having come to an end. He wants to be training to try and maintain his, his fitness ahead of wherever he ends up deciding to, to move in in January. And he asked Real Madrid if he could go and use the facilities at Valdebebas, which, of course, are, are, are second to none. Now, his relationship with the club it took a bit of a hit when he left in, in 2018, I think it, it's fair to say. Um, there was a little bit of, of bad blood there, but it's improved quite a bit since then. In the last couple of years, he has been, he's been spotted back at the Bernabeu for watching the odd, the odd game. And whenever you've heard someone like Florentino Perez talk about Cristiano, he's been very, very complimentary. So that relationship has improved a lot. And so when Ronaldo said, look, can I come to Valdebebas to, to train? And the club said, no problem. Anytime you want to you come train, you can do that. Now, it's important to say, he hasn't been training with the Real Madrid first team. He hasn't been there taking part in rondos and, and five-a-sides. He's been training on his own on a separate pitch. But he's been there at Real Madrid's training ground. And of course, that gets people excited. But all I would say in terms of the, the, that kind of speculation is, well, look, remember that Madrid, they could have brought Ronaldo back last summer if they'd wanted to. They didn't want to do that then. I'm not sure what would have changed in... I, I say last summer, I mean 2021, of course. Oh, um, Karim what, Benzema's what, injuries? Benzema has had, a, has had a, a funny old season, hasn't he? And he, he hasn't been at his best at any stage this season so far. But it, even so, I'd, I'd be absolutely staggered if, if that ended up happening. Because like I say, they had opportunities to bring him back and they decided not to. I'm not sure what would make that make a case for that now when you've got Vinicius in the kind of form that he's in on the, on the left wing. You've got Rodrigo, who's been really good as a deputy for, uh, for Benzema. I, I just can't see it. But he's welcome to, to train there as long as he likes you know, Gab Marcotti has been saying from the beginning, it's like he, it's like he made the rumour that, he, well, you know, he should go back to Real Madrid. He's got a great relationship with Ancelotti. He could go back there. And he's been persisting with that all the time. So I'd be really interested to see what his reaction was today when he saw this. <laughs> Rob, I don't understand why he didn't go and use the facilities at uh, Man in Manchester, at Manchester United, <laughs> Carrington. You know, why, why not uh, there? Uh, uh, I don't think his security pass works anymore. I don't think that he's allowed <laughs> through the gates. He's been told. Um, How do you think this will welcome. be picked up in, Ma in the Manchester press, Rob? Well, I mean, it's there'll obviously be a lot of speculation. Um, the fact that he's there um, training, you know, it's a very easy link to make, um, particularly when you know there's an injury to, to Benzema as well. And um, you know, often we find in these situations where in the past where players have kind of turned up at clubs to, to use their facilities, you know, next thing you know that there is a little bit more um, smoke and then all of a sudden they've signed and, and they're on a short-term contract to the end of the season. It, I mean, it doesn't sound like that's the case this time, but um, I think it's, it would be lovely to, to see him stay in Europe, to be honest. I think we've, we've heard all the, the speculation that talk about possibly joining a, a club in Saudi Arabia, that the money that's off, on offer there. I think a lot of people, you know, whether you like Cristiano Ronaldo or, or not, or agree with, with the behaviour that he's, he's demonstrated in the last few months. I think a lot of people would like to see such a great player remain in Europe for, for as long as possible, whether that's at Real Madrid or somewhere else. I think possibly that, that offer in, in Saudi Arabia is going to be there in a year or two or maybe three years. I don't think that his timeline in Europe is that long. So 
Um, I think it would be a shame if, if he went and, and joined um, the league in Saudi Arabia and, and took the money. I think he's probably still got maybe a couple of years left in, in Europe. And, and if not a Real Madrid, somewhere like Sporting Lisbon, you know, back at his first club, I think that would be quite a, a romantic end to his career in Europe. Yeah, you know, I just want to tell everybody here at ESPN FC Daily that we have a little private chat here where we talk about who should jump in and stuff. And Kay has been like, feel free to say your point, LME. And I really, I don't want to anymore. I don't want to talk about Ronaldo anymore. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to get yelled at. I don't, I, you know, I, I, I said my piece. Good for him. He has a house everywhere. Madrid, Lisbon, Manchester. I don't know. Ibiza, Lima. I don't know. Anywhere. So uh, do your thing, Ronaldo. Good luck to you. He's going to go to Andesar. Surely, no? That's a, that's a big contract, Kay. Surely he's going to take the money and run. I don't think so. I think, uh, and I don't see that. I don't see that happening, but we'll see. We will see. We are going to let Alex go now. Definitely, we're going to let you go, Alex. Don't worry. We're not going to call you back in. I'm definitely Thanks, not guys. getting this one. Bye -bye. And thank you so much for being with us. We look forward to hearing more from you on the daily. But we will keep you, Rob, if you don't mind, because we are going to welcome in cool. Dale Johnson as well, because we do want to talk about 2026 and VAR, of course, because we always love to talk about that. Uh, but just but just as we do get ready to bring him in, Rob, what are your thoughts on the expansion and making the World Cup uh, 48 teams instead of 32? Nervous, to be honest, and particularly because the format hasn't really been revealed yet. I think that, you know, for all the problems that, that this World Cup has thrown up, I think the one thing that it, it, it did get right or the format gets right is the jeopardy, the jeopardy at different stages. Um, you know, we talk about the quarterfinals and the semifinals being this sort of these big matchups between two um, massive teams. But the, the last round of those group games were absolutely fantastic. You think about, um, you know, the drama of teams like Germany going out, um, Japan beating Spain, you know, watching two games at the same time and not, not knowing really who's going to go out until sort of the last seconds of games. You know, really, FIFA need to be looking at and, and keeping that because that is the essence of the World Cup. Obviously, we're all going to enjoy a, a grandstand finish on, on Sunday between Argentina and France. And that's what people are attracted to the World Cup by. But it's also that drama earlier in the tournament. And I think FIFA need to do everything possible to, to keep that. I think it's going to be difficult with 48 teams, but they need to do everything in their power to make sure that is maintained. Because that really, you know, for me, that was the most exciting round of games at this World Cup. And, and to lose that would be, would be criminal, really. Yeah, very quick on this. There's a lot of context that needs to be obviously discussed when we're talking about the increasing of teams. Because on one hand, this is a good thing for nations and national teams from federations that really want to develop their own soccer. And, and they don't have, obviously, the infrastructure that the likes of, you know, an England or a Germany or a France may have. You know, I'm thinking specifically CONCACAF, of course, and even CONMEBOL to a certain point. And of course, when you go to Asia, et cetera, and Africa being the most uh, key thing. So, but I do, I do take Rob's point as well, because it's important to understand that competition needs to be that competition at the very highest and the world cup finals the world cup finals need to be that competition at its highest so yes 48 teams could mean a more open-ended discussion into what it means to uh, welcome teams that really want to be a powerhouse in the world but at the same time we need to make sure that we maintain the level of high excellence in competition so it has a lot of context and nuance this conversation it's not just one ended well, let's get a bit more information on it. Dale, what do we know so far about the plans? What can you tell us? Yes, yeah, so FIFA decided six years ago that it was going to be 16 groups of three teams. Uh, now, the problem with this is that, firstly, you lose a lot of the jeopardy, as Rob mentioned, because you're getting the top two going through. So two-thirds of the, the World Cup go through to the knockout rounds. 
Um, but the other problem is, is that when you haven't got teams playing concurrently in their final group game, then you get a situation whereby teams can play out a specific results. Um, say 1-0, and that results in the those two teams playing that game to go through in first and second, and the team that isn't playing to go out of the tournament. Now, FIFA proposed to get around this by having a penalty shootout around every draw, drawn game. But then again, that still doesn't change the outcome where you're playing for 1-0. It still can be a collusion. So I think FIFA have finally realised that this three-team idea isn't really going to work. Now, one of the reasons why they went for the three-team idea was they wanted to limit the increase in games from 64 to 80. And a lot of that was pressure from the clubs and from uh, from the players' associations who didn't want an extra workload. Now, on this system with uh, three groups of 16, then they could still play the World Cup in around 32 days. Now, with the suggestion, and I think this is going to happen, I think they've realised they're going to have to do it, where they go to four groups of 12 and every team plays three games still, that's going to increase the World Cup to 104 matches. And that means that they're going to have to play over a longer period, at least 35 days. And obviously, this is going to be something that's going to put FIFA and the World Cup back on the collision course with European clubs about the amount of time it's going to take up in the summer. But I think that if you're going to have a 48-team tournament, you need to have the 12 groups of four teams because it's just a better format. You are going to have third-place teams going through to create um, the, the, the right balance of teams going through to create the uh, round of 32 to round of 16 onwards to the final. But it will just be better than it will be to having these um, these singular games at the end, which could be could lead to collusion of results. Dale, let's just go back quickly to the game that just was uh, and that big VAR moment, the big uh, rule moment regarding Bufa, who only was showing a yellow uh, for, for the foul on, on Hernandez. Have you been getting a lot of uh, questions regarding that moment? Yeah, and then those questions also last night about the Argentine decision for us in quite similar reasons. But I was quite surprised on this one. I can see why the VARs decided to 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 stick with the on-field decision, that I don't particularly think it was a correct one. The reason is, is that he's, he's saying that uh, Theo Hernandez has got a touch on the ball before he uh, collides with Bufal. But the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that he didn't collide with Bufal with the foot he made the challenge with. It was his opposite foot that came round and sweeped Bufal. And of course, it was Bufal that got booked for the challenge. Now, VAR can't do anything about that unless it advises a penalty. Now, interesting one, this is Drew Fisher, the VAR, who's a Canadian official. He was also the VAR in Poland versus Saudi Arabia. And he gave one of the softest penalties of the uh, competition to Saudi Arabia, which they actually missed. Um, and that was far more, this one was far more of a penalty than the one he didn't give in that group game. Yeah, so do you want to talk about that Argentina moment then as well uh, that you alluded to there, Dale? Because I know a lot of people have been asking about that too. Yeah, so I think people think because the goalkeeper hasn't made a, hasn't made a chance and he's stopped that it shouldn't be a penalty. But the problem is, is that keeper's come out to make a challenge and he's made his body bigger. And because he's made his body bigger and spread with his left with his right leg, sorry, and he's created a barrier to the striker. Now, just because he hasn't he stopped his momentum, it doesn't mean that he can't. I've made a foul challenge on the striker. And I know I can see why people might think it shouldn't be a penalty because the goalkeeper had essentially stopped, but he'd still come out and created that barrier. So there's certainly no way that a VAR is going to overturn that decision by the referee. And if the referee hadn't have given it, I would be, I'd be fully expecting there to be a review for a penalty for that. Yeah. And just one last question while you are here. Have you been surprised? Obviously, there's so much at stake. It's the World Cup. But I feel as though we've seen some big-name players calling out referees after almost every game in the knockouts. It's funny, isn't it? Because the knockouts have actually been a lot quieter than the group stage in terms of VAR and controversy and decisions which have 
been really heated. I mean, I think a lot of it when it comes down to the knockout rounds, you're talking about frustration of players of really high pressure moments and they know that this is like a defining moment of their career. So they don't want things to go wrong around refereeing decisions. But I think I think on the whole, once we got to the knockout stages, the refereeing's been, uh, been a lot better than it has in the group stages, that's for sure. Great. Well, we thank so uh, much, Dale Johnson and Rob Dawson as well. Rob, we're definitely going to let you go this time. Yeah. Don't worry. You can actually leave and go and do whatever you need to do. Perfect. We don't need to call you back now, but please do come back on the show soon. We love having you. All right, Louise. So because it's just you and me, I did mention that I was going to talk about Randall Colo Muani and even Teo Hernandez, because this is a story in this game as well of players who've come in for someone. Teo Hernandez coming in for his brother, obviously, earlier on and making a big difference to the team. But Randall Colomuani, remember, he got called up because of Nkunku's injury. That's why this player's here. This is a player who, if you're following the Bundesliga this season, or if you're following Ligue 1, you saw what he did with Nantes, which was a lot. Um, he has just hit the ground running with Eintracht Frankfurt. He's been absolutely brilliant. It's his work and everything he did there that even got him this call-up once Nkunku did go down, who's also been brilliant, as per usual, for Leipzig. So it's just been brilliant to see that he made the difference in this game today. And once again, we're just seeing brilliant stories come from the World Cup. But what a brilliant story. Just to end, Morocco's run was Luis. Seconds after coming on. Unbelievable. I think he couldn't even believe it when he did it himself, right? After Mbappé entered the box and he was trying to, you know, find a way to shoot. And those are what the stories are all about. Like you said, Kay, it's really great to see. And I love the happenstance and the story of what you just said right there. It's only because of Nkunku's injury that he came in. And you're going to see that over and over again. And Argentina has him as well of their own. Julian Alvarez wasn't even a starter for Argentina. He wasn't even a thought, really, for Scaloni until much later into the qualifying campaign. Obviously, he moves to Manchester City, and now he's one of the main factors for Argentina in a World Cup final. This is what we live for, King Murray. Always. Oh, it absolutely is. We will be back Sunday after that World Cup final, whether it's extra time penalties or just regular time. We will be here live on the daily. Make sure you are. <laughs>